You are so beautiful. What does that mean exactly? Unitarian Universalist ministers are sometimes teased, sometimes even criticized for always preaching from our particular sacred text, the dictionary. (laughs) (laughs) And it is true that I spend a lot of time unpacking the meanings of words, but that is only because far from being simply an academic exercise, I'm interested in the very practical matter, borrowing a delightful phrase from a Raymond Carver short story, I'm interested in the very practical matter of exploring what we talk about when we talk about love, what we talk about when we talk about justice, what we talk about when we talk about truth, what we talk about when we talk about today, beauty. These are all words which we use and to which we nod our heads when others use them as if we all had a pretty clear idea of what they mean and yet they are all used in a wide variety of ways in such a wide variety of contexts that they cannot have a single consistent meaning across those various contexts and most likely differ from person to person even within a given context and often are used and affirmed among a group of people who, while unclear themselves on the particular meaning, politely assume that a clear meaning certainly exists, and anyway support the generally positive, if not always precise, definition that has certainly existed for centuries and is commonly accepted by all. Right? And I don't invite you to participate in these explorations because I want us to end up with correct definitions of these words, as if. But only so that we may notice the range of interpretations a single word can hold, with the possibility that we will understand ourselves a little more, communicate with others a little more deeply, and respond to the world a little more clearly while lightly holding on to this new awareness. And also, frankly, because I think it's a lot of fun. (laughs) So when we say something or someone is beautiful, what do we mean? You are so beautiful to me. The lyrics to the song that Mark just played, which I saw many of you, I could read your lips singing along. (laughs) They're pretty simple and clear. You are so beautiful to me. You're everything I hoped for. You're everything I need. You are so beautiful to me. However, the lyrics are maybe not so helpful when it comes to defining beautiful. Is beauty what I hope for? Is it what I need? Is what I hope for and what I need the same thing? I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but I would suggest that the you in the song who is beautiful may have turned out to be also what the singer hoped for and needed, but that these are additions to beauty and not definitions of beauty. You see what I mean? For instance, when I find a particular piece of music beautiful, it is not beautiful because I hoped for it. I didn't know it was there to hope for, or because I needed it, 
I could most likely have lived without it, and indeed, I'm sure there are many pieces of music that I would find beautiful that I will never get to hear. I may want to hear them, but I don't imagine that I need to hear them. And I realize that beauty can take on different meanings when applied to someone as opposed to something. And I realize that You Are So Beautiful is a song and a love song at that so that it is not meant to define the word beautiful, but to describe a state of being, the feeling of being in love. Which makes me wonder, does beauty have to do with how I feel about something? Before I wander too far afield again, let me return to my sacred text and read you the definition of beautiful from the Oxford American Dictionary. Pleasing the senses or mind aesthetically. So is beautiful the same as pretty? Attractive? I tend to think of pretty or attractive as less Profound qualities referring to the surface or outward appearance. We speak of inner beauty, but rarely of being pretty on the inside or inner attractiveness. We often use beauty along with words like truth and goodness and tend to feel like we have a pretty good sense of the separation between the way someone looks as opposed to the way someone is. But do I? Let me read this passage. It comes from a book called A Personal Jesus by Upton Sinclair. Next comes the question, what did Jesus look like? Every scribe who copied a manuscript would be made happy to write that the founder of his faith was godlike in appearance. The same scribe would be in anguish as he wrote that the godly one was small and unprepossessing and had a crooked back. And yet, such are the traditions which have come down to us. St. Justin Martyr, church father of the second century, said as follows, He appeared without comeliness as the scriptures declared. These last words are of major importance to us, writes Sinclair, for the scriptures we possess declare nothing of the sort. It can only be that the pious scribes cut out the unpleasant descriptions of their revered founder. If they had been pleasant descriptions, they surely would have been allowed to stand. Clement of Alexandria, another church father, wrote, The Lord himself was uncomely in aspect. His form was mean inferior to men. Tertullian, mastermind of the early church, says his body did not reach even to human beauty to say nothing of heavenly glory. Such were the traditions concerning Jesus in the western half of the Christian world. Now let us go to the eastern half and see what we find there. St. Andrew, Bishop of Crete, at the beginning of the 8th century, wrote as follows. But moreover, The Jew, Josephus, in like manner, narrates that the Lord was seen having conate eyebrows, also known as unibrow, (laughs) goodly eyes, long-faced, crooked, well-grown. The word crooked is that Greek word, and I'm sure I'll mispronounce this, but epikufos, and it means 
hunchbacked. Practically the same words are found in Escolian to John of Damascus in two manuscripts. Both of these are highly regarded church fathers, and surely they did not write such words lightly. End quote. Whatever your theological orientation or your personal connection to the stories about Jesus, how many of you were just a little shocked by the physical image of Jesus that Upton Sinclair uncovered in writings by church fathers? Heretic that I am considered to be by some, I was astonished to find how deeply the image of a handsome Jesus had lodged itself into my psyche. Even traveling outside the tall white Jesus of my childhood church to include the images of Jesus from many different cultures across time, as well as more recent images that have attempted a much more accurate depiction of a Galilean Semite, the pictures I've seen have never shown less than a noble, peaceful, pleasing figure, and certainly no inkling that he may have been markedly, well, unattractive. What does that do to our image of Jesus? Does it change how we picture and thus how we hear those famous stories? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let the little children come to me and do not stop them. Truly, I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. And the question is, why do we, why do I, expect Jesus to appear as beautiful? It was not a conscious expectation, but uncovered when I ran across this passage in Sinclair and noticed my visceral reaction. Obviously, the expectation has been fed by images and movies and descriptions of what people imagine Jesus may have looked like, but why? You see, this goes well beyond Jesus. It runs through our culture from fairy tales. Think Cinderella and her what? Stepsisters? ugly. From fairy tales to feature films, think nearly any movie that attempts to portray good and evil. And I can tell myself that I am certainly more sophisticated than that, and I can tell myself that beautiful is different than pretty or attractive or handsome or pleasing to the eye, and this is all true in theory. And yet, as a quote mistakenly attributed to Yogi Berra says, in theory, Theory and practice are the same. In practice, they are not. (laughs) So because of the symbolism of stories down through the ages that portray goodness through beauty and evil through ugliness or unattractiveness or infirmity, I have internalized a very naive notion that beauty is goodness and goodness will be recognizably beautiful And in practice, I sometimes carry this notion so that it pays for me to be aware of that. It is amazing how complete is the delusion that beauty is goodness, writes Leo Tolstoy. 
Or one might add that goodness will necessarily appear beautiful. Love has nothing to do with what you're looking at and everything to do with who's looking, writes Jody Pico, which is a nice companion to the old adage that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And when we talk about nurturing spiritual growth in our mission, I think that part of what we mean is teaching and inspiring and encouraging the beholder in ourselves, the one who is looking to see, and I don't mean see as a single sense, but to experience beauty where it may not first present itself as attractive or pretty. We are teaching and inspiring and encouraging the one inside us who looks, who experiences to find, bring, call forth love where it seems there is a lack of love. I love the O'Donohue piece that Maureen selected for the readings today, and especially this line, each face is a particular intensity of human presence. Wow. It reminded me of Annie Dillard's words in our hymnal, we are here to abet creation and to witness to it, to notice each other's beautiful face and complex nature so that creation need not play to an empty house. Again, there is power in the noticing. And I had only one note of caution for myself as I was reading O'Donohue, which is when he talks about bleakness and negativity lodging visibly in the face. That may well be true, and I would never trust myself to interpret that. I've seen that go way wrong. Because look, it's even become a meme on the internet there are people who, when their faces are at rest, take on expressions that are perceived as conveying, let's say, disapproval or disappointment, less than invitational. I have heard people, and I am sure that I have done it also, perceive and then interpret these expressions as actual disapproval or standoffishness or disagreement when I know the person wearing that expression has no intention of sending such a message in the least and may indeed be looking for an opportunity to engage. And I know that O'Donohue is not talking about a single expression. I am only saying that as a humble beholder, I need always be aware of what I am bringing and not bringing to the beholding and be ready to find beauty where it is not immediately apparent, like in the hardworking hands of May from the story. I love Stories, novels about crabby, irascible people like a man called Oove and Olive Kittredge. It reminds me always to question my assumptions about people and to notice the beauty hiding behind those barriers as the authors of these stories do. And I don't have a way to tidily wrap this up. Indeed, my intention is quite the opposite, to unwrap it, 
and leave it unwrapped, to engage with beauty in all its messiness and paradox, to probe it and question it, to notice the similarities between beautiful and attractive, and to also notice the differences, to mark when beauty is accompanied by goodness and truth, and also when it is not, to witness the beauty of one another, and to believe in that beauty even when we cannot see it. 